0: Welcome back to the School of Saints podcast with Tim and Jacko. And today we have an expert guest, the phenomenal from the strength and conditioning world, Eric Cressy. And what this guy doesn't know about the shoulder um, isn't worth
1: knowing, Tim yeah when you start to think about the big cheeses and strength and condition Eric Cressy is certainly up there
0: with the top ones and he's what would you like him to I Jackie? would like him to a whole wheel of cam- baked camembert because he's, when you get in there it's rich and it's creamy and you can just keep on and dipping <laughs> So we go into some detail on the shoulder. This
1: one is a little bit more technical due to sort of the the, the population that Eric works with, particularly the high-end performance, um, major league baseball players. These guys are doing 160 games a year. So he knows a thing or two about keeping a shoulder um, healthy. And some of the stats that he talks about around what these guys need to do, the speed of the shoulders, there's certainly some great takeaways for how we can utilize some of these training methodologies and just be aware a little bit more of what we're doing with our shoulders and how to look after them. So I think there's a lot to take away from this one it might require a second listen because the knowledge that eric drops is definitely some content in there that i'm going to go back to and revisit so sit back and enjoy eric cressy on the school of calisthenics podcast hit the jingle
0: so eric welcome to the school of calisthenics podcast thanks for having me guys it's an absolute pleasure uh, to have somebody of your expertise and knowledge of. I was going to say to Tim before, what, what, uh, what you don't know about the shoulder is not worth knowing. So um, <laughs> people are in for a treat um, today. Uh, there may be one person that's listening to this that, that, that sort of follows the podcast that goes, who's Eric Cressy? Like, why, why, why are Tim and Jack are so excited about this? So for that one person, could you just in a bit of a nutshell... Um, what what your background is and, and where you've got to today and just feel free to name drop um Cut. anyone just yeah. to uh <laughs> to to show what the type of level that you're working at
2: yeah absolutely so um you know i co-founded pressy sports performance um we're a training facility that has locations in both massachusetts and florida um, you know, we deal with folks from all walks of life, but um, baseball players are definitely kind of our biggest wheelhouse. So we train guys from all 30 different organizations. Um, and, you know, that expertise in the baseball realm obviously lends itself really well to a lot of shoulder and elbow pathology that we, we encounter. But um, even beyond that, it's allowed us to do a little bit more work in the tennis community, swimming community, quarterbacks, you name it. So really overhead throwing sport uh, athletes are our wheelhouse. And, you know, we've kind of been at the forefront of Understanding the injury evolution, you know, how we, we're seeing different surgeries now than we were 10 years ago and, you know, helping people to manage that dynamic. Um, but I also do some writing, some consulting, some speaking. I'm um, a dad of three daughters, one of which is a newborn, so I apologize if I look <laughs> sleep deprived, but um, that's, that's life in a nutshell.
0: Great um, thanks for that and uh, we 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 started a conversation um, having seen that you put our post out recently i 'm just going to read it out of, of what he said and before we get stuck into some of the nitty gritty of the shoulder stuff, um, he said the single most important factor for long term athletic development is fun. more fun equals better consistency and adherence, mm-hmm. which equals better outcomes if they hate training at age twelve, you can bet they 're going to be uh, going to be uninspired or completely absent by the age of eighteen and i just I found it was quite a we believe in the same principle, but to, I think, a lot of people uh, within professional sport and within elite sport will potentially not necessarily think that way and a lot of people that aren't in that looking into from the outside looking into sort of professional sport will think oh no it's it's professional it's not about uh, enjoying yourself and it's not about play um and so i just wanted to open up the conversation about that about why you know, have you always thought that is that is that something that's been uh, grown gradually in your philosophy
2: um, no, I think it's, you know, certainly it's evolved over the course of time, you know, to your point about, you know, you can't be professional while having play like, I actually disagree 100%. They aren't mutually exclusive things. Um, you know, we're what I would consider a very professional business. We get direct referrals from orthopedic surgeons and physical therapists and agents and attorneys and everything imaginable. Financial planners will refer to us in the baseball realm where they have an important role. Um, yet if you walk into the machine, there's into the facility, there's raging against the machine playing and, you know, uh, bumping music and people are joking around. And, you know, I, I absolutely embrace people's weird, um, you know, staff members that wear goofy things. In fact, at our facility here in Massachusetts, um, when I'm not here, they actually have a a cardboard cutout of me that they put on the floor. (laughs) So they joke that I'm always here and the staff thinks it's hilarious. And our, our clients have bought into it too. So um, I think it's really important. And I think we're, to be honest, where it's come around um, a lot is, you know, we deal with obviously a young, a lot of young athletes and the pressures uh, societally on, on kids at the youngest ages, you know, certainly with respect to sport, you know, the, the push for early sports specialization and you know, being too aggressive, too early with training initiatives, you know, those are things that have taken a lot of the fun out of, of participation. Obviously there's, yeah. you know, way more societal, pre- you know, pressures as evidenced by, you know, the suicide rates and the relationship to, you know, social media, bullying and things like that. Like I want our facility to be the third place. There's home, there's work or school, and then there's the gym. And, and I want people to feel like this is a, a safe haven where they can come, they can, they can embrace their inner weird, they can have a lot of fun. And You know, they can they can wanna stay well beyond just the training session. They want to be part of something bigger than themselves and part of a family. So we try to create that.
0: Yeah, we um, the, the the focus on in that in that sort of post that you put out was about um, play at a young age. Yeah. Um, and I, I used to play professional rugby, and one of our we had a number of really good coaches, and one of them did say that, like, "fellows, we need to remember being sat in a team meeting, and it was all very serious." But he said, "we need to enjoy what we're doing if we're not going to go out on the training pitch and and enjoy it and and have not necessarily have like fun, but there is that there is that element of when I think of enjoying something, I do think of it being fun." And playful to a degree, and that's as as adults. Do you is there less as an emphasis on adults with with yourself when, or would you would you keep it? Would you say the same? No, I
2: think. I mean, don't get me wrong. We can still, you know, joke around. I think the jokes are, you know, obviously different when you're dealing with your your general pop folks that are a little bit further along. And I think that's no. There's there's actually a fair amount of research that supports that. You know, if you look at baby boomers versus. You know, millennials and obviously the Gen Xers are in the middle, but like, you know, you can just look and see that you know, um, baby boomers rank autonomy as much more important to them in a work environment. Um, whereas millennials don't rank it as very important at all. Um, they don't care if you tell them exactly how to do it more than anything. They care about being part of, a, you know, something bigger than themselves. They, they, they care about, you know, working as part of a team and developing relationships and things like that. Whereas, you know, someone who's 30 years older might just be like, hey, I want to go to work. I want you to leave me alone. I know how to do my job. Let me do it. And if I finish early, I get to leave. Um, and, and that's fine. You can't fault them for that. So um, you know, I think we are dealing with different generational dynamics that we have to appreciate. Um, you know, and, and that's why, like the average one millennial employee, I think they said it you know, stays at a job about eighteen to twenty-four months. So it's not a really really long time. So, um, you know, they're they're searching for something novel, and we can we can appreciate that in our training, right? If you look at the you know the success of CrossFit, one of the things that they've done really really well is. You know, whether you agree with it or not, there, there's different training sessions every time you come in. There's there's a lot of yeah. movement, vari- maybe not so much movement and variability, but there's a lot of exercise variability um, where yeah. you don't really know what's going to happen. So it's kind of like a novel stimulus. It's like, you know, you know, hit refresh on your email inbox and, you know, having five new messages. So I, I think they feed into that quite a bit. Um, I don't think yeah. that novelty has to come just from training, though. You can in many cases get that from the culture you create. Um, you know, from you know, how you, you position the, you know, the, the way that your facility runs and, you know, the interactions you have with people. So there, there's different ways to interject that fun, but it's important to have it.
1: Yeah. yeah, I think that's awesome I like look at the social dynamics of the generations of, of people that you're, you're dealing with in your population and then also like say the not just about the what the training program does but the culture around that as well and yeah. it makes me think when I first started a lot of my career has been spent with Paralympic athletes and I remember when I got into calisthenics to start off with um, I started I wrote on the top of my training program for some of the guys who've been in the game a long time and these are swimmers and you know what that sport's like it's brutal in terms of the training regimes a lot of sessions they do a lot of hours and I just put a, a, a section at the top of the program it was athletic development and it was just about trying to learn to move in a new way and I would just set movement challenges of whatever that might be that was just how many reps is it? don't know let's just do it for five minutes and yeah. we'll see how far we get um, and it just it caught on and the guys loved it and it was a spark at the beginning of the session which was just around okay we can breathe a bit like it's not about four sets of five or, or anything like that it was the freedom to just do something a bit different mm-hmm. do you find space for that in in obviously you're in, the baske- uh, in your baseball population I mean those guys in season are doing a huge amount of, of, of work as is well. Is it like 160 games a season? Yeah. Is, am I right? Um, how, do, how does that sort of stuff look in terms of keeping their, their, them fresh during a season? And, and yeah. does play have a place when you've got such a rigorous reg- regime?
2: Um, you know what I would say is it's it, it's hard to find a lot of play in a rigorous schedule like that. I mean, you're talking about 100, you know, when you really do the math, like you're probably looking at about 200 games in 230 days. When you figure 162 game season plus, you know, spring training on the front end, which is usually about six weeks, um, you know, and then certainly postseason play on the back end. You know, you'll have scenarios when guys you know, go play for Team USA on an Asian tour or something like that. So it's a very, very long competitive season. Um, and baseball is not a sport that has a tremendous amount of movement variability, um, particularly if you're a pitcher, right? You're going to throw pitches over and yeah. over again. They all look the same. And you play outfield, you're going to run, you're going to change direction, you're going to do a lot of different things. So, um, you know, you do have to have a fair amount of movement variability in your training. Um, the, the hard part about it is it's, it's really, really hard to find gaps in the schedule where you can just throw in like, hey, we're going we're gonna to go play beach volleyball today. Um, a because there's <laughs> concerns about you know obviously injuries and people doing familiar stuff, but you know in the baseball calendar there there it was actually like collectively bargained that the players were mad there were not enough days off. Um, they actually changed that, and what they they did was they actually put a lot of them on the beginning of the season when there tend to be more rain and snow outs and things like that where they were losing days anyway. Um, but you're you're doing it you're dealing with a situation where guys literally may not have a single day off in the entire month. Um, it's just such a grind. So yeah I, I don't think using elite sport is the best example um because they're you know they're obviously being paid very well to play it but you have such extensive and mega people um the last thing they want to do on their day off is go into the park and have a team building experience they want to they yeah. want to take their kids to school they want to sleep in they want to go out to breakfast with their family um maybe they want to go in and you know like a little amusement park tour or see a museum or something like that so you're very restricted in what you can do in that regard. With that said, you know, where you can create that dynamic is, you know, having a little bit of like a, I don't want to say a loosely managed clubhouse, but you have a, you know, a pick your battles manager. And those are the managers that tend to be thriving in baseball. They're really the, the old guard, really strict disciplinarians are really almost being phased out of the game. And you look at some of the managers who are very known for trying to have progressive cultures where they give players more autonomy, like you look at Joe Madden with the Cubs, you look at you know Rockaball Deli with the twins, you look at Terry Francona with the Indians. These are all guys who have who have worked really, really hard to establish a good culture underneath them. Dave Roberts with the Dodgers is another name that was popular. Mickey Cowley with the Mets. Like you can look across baseball and see these are people that aren't they're not wearing guys out. There's enough failure in baseball already. If you, if you fail 70% of the time, you're one of the best players on the planet from a hitting <laughs> yeah. standpoint. So the last thing you need to do is a, crank, have a, is a cranky old man telling you that you suck. Um, so I think what <laughs> yeah. they do more is they give guys more autonomy, um, give them a little bit more wiggle room, don't wear them out about stupid things. Maybe you, you, know, you bring in a, a comedian to the clubhouse or you know, I think Joe Maddon's had like penguins in the clubhouse before. <laughs> Where light. If you're gonna be away with your, from your family for a week and a half for a road trip, you know, if they can do stuff like that, it goes a long way. Um, I think players more than yeah. anything appreciate, you know, like, you know, good food for for catering and, you know, just uh, not having to deal with with silly, you know, other stuff that tends to take more and more time away from their family. That yeah. said, that's that's the highest level. Um, you know, at, at the college setting, like I see tremendous places for team building stuff, you know, in the high school environment, the middle school environment, in the private sector, you know, travel ball, things like that you have to find those experiences you gotta you gotta give them opportunities to to blend together as part of a team culture and um you know and so i think it's an entirely different ball game when you're not getting paid millions of dollars yeah yeah
1: and um, so we're gonna dive in a little bit and, and use uh, the opportunity to gain some of your expertise and share it with the audience around the shoulder and um We've um, we've actually both studied your your sturdy shoulders resource, Thanks which so. um, could highly recommend to, to people if you're interested in going to a deeper understanding around shoulder mechanics. Just a little bit of, of context, if you will, Eric, around the, the sort of demands of baseball from on the shoulder, um, and then what what ultimately do we want a shoulder to be able to? What does a healthy shoulder look like? Because we see so many people coming into calisthenics and from our background in sports performance as well, whose shoulders are just in a, in a bit of a mess. To be fair, and mine used to be one of those. Um, and and a not a lot. It's often, I think, one of the, the joints which is quite difficult to self-diagnose yourself. Like if you, if for example, you've got a knee problem, it's a little bit easier to understand what the issue is rather than, than the shoulder. So, you, you sort of your thoughts on a starter yeah. around um, around shoulder health, and and again, like what what's how that links into yeah. baseball.
2: So the first thing I would say is, if you're speaking to the shoulder in general, you know, standpoint, you have to appreciate that it's not just a joint; it's a series of joints, right? So you have your sternoclavicular joint where your sternum and your, your collarbone interact. You have your acromioclavicular joint where your your collarbone interact with your scapula you have your glenohumeral joint which is the ball and socket that everybody thinks of when they hear shoulder um you know you also have basically your um uh, your scapulothoracic joint where your, your shoulder blade interacts with rib gauge and you know you've got you know other interactions between those ribs themselves and the structures further up so you're you're dealing with a situation where there's actually a lot of joints that you have to appreciate and they're all kind of maintained in a very very small balance and you know, if you kind of look at the scapula as the center of all this, it's the one that probably is most involved on, on most of those with respect to, you know, just the functional anatomy perspective. There's there's 17 different muscular attachments on your scapula, you know, so via your levator scapula, your shoulder blade interacts with your, interacts with your cervical spine, obviously interacts with your, your, your humeral head through the rotator cuff, and, you know, uh, you know, the long head of your triceps runs from your scapula all the way down onto your olecranon, so it interacts with the lower arm, long head of your biceps and the short head of your biceps, both attach on your scapula. They go down onto the forearm. Your lat attaches um, on your humerus and about 40% of the population it attaches on the scapula. And then it goes down and it attaches on the, the thoracolumbar fascia at the base of your spine. And even in a small percentage of the population, it attaches on the, the ilium, so the top of the pelvis. So this is kind of the bone that that effectively bridges the gap between the head and the hips. Um, so you're, you're dealing with a situation where there's pretty complex anatomy. Um, and it's, you know, kind of, it's kind of held in a really tight window. Um, and it's why simple solutions don't often work. We do, but we do have to take complex topics and try to make them uh, simple. So what I mean by that is, you know, how people be like, oh, your shoulder hurts. Just go hang, like hanging will fix you. I'm like, yeah, hanging <laughs> will work terribly if you're crazy hypermobile and you've got a degenerative biceps tendon that's hanging by a thread and you're just going to go live on it. That's going to make you substantially worse if you're weak and all that. So, you know, one size fits all solutions don't work well. Um, you know, I've heard the other one is like, just do 100 band pull-aparts a day. I'm like, well, if you're in a military posture um, <laughs> and you do your band pull-aparts incorrectly and they're all like rhomboids and lats instead of getting like mid traps and all that, like you're going to make yourself substantially worse. You're probably going to get a lot of neck pain. So um, yeah, it's, well,
0: what, it's almost like part of the society now in the sort of fitness Uh, space is always like, what's the one thing that I need to do? Yeah. And
2: there's, and there's, (laughs) and there's
0: always someone there that's, that's the going, Oh, this is the thing you need to do. Yeah. And it's like, well, for, for, yeah, for one person that might be right. But as you say, the, for, we can't have a, a one-size-fits-all. And I think that's just an encouragement to the, it's just good to hear it from another voice. Absolutely. Um, encouragement to the listeners of like, we try to get people to understand their own bodies better so that they can choose which of the exercises and which of the things are going to be most beneficial to them. And ultimately... It's a bit of an educational process, and it can be a bit a bit frustrating at times. Right. But you're gonna, and maybe it takes a little bit longer than if someone just gives you the magic bullet yeah. that doesn't actually exist. But that journey and understanding during that process—that's where you're going to learn an awful yeah. lot more about yourself and your training to yeah. move forward. So, so, so think about yeah, this: today,
2: right? I don't know if either you guys are distance runners, but let's say I send both of you guys out for a twenty-mile jog, and you're not—you're not runners, right? So you go out and you jog, and, and one of you comes back with a cranky Achilles tendon, right? And the other one comes back with anterior knee pain. Even though the exact same stress- I win, right? Yeah, the exact stress is the same, right, for both of you. So you break yeah. down in markedly different positions. The same can be said of how you adapt at the shoulder, right? So, you know, in baseball, for instance, like we have athletes that, you know, and, and you, you kind of wanted to get into the baseball side of things. So throwing a baseball is the single fastest motion in all sports. So if you just put your arm up and you internally rotate, as you see during the baseball motion- um, it's seven thousand degrees per second of internal rotation. You know that's the equivalent of the ball rotating twenty times in full revolutions in a matter of a second um, on the socket. So it's just crazy velocities. And what actually happens is you have a lot of eccentric stress, right? Because you the ball. You know when you get the ball release, could just kind of keep going and it come right out of the socket. So you have distraction forces. You have a lot of aggressive, um, you know, internal rotation. You know, kind of velocity you have to control. And what's really interesting is there there'll some people that will adapt you know, from like an eccentric stress standpoint, they'll lose range of motion. So the posterior cuff will get really, really stiff. We see them lose elbow extension. They, they just get fibrotic and nasty. You know, that's what we see with our people who are tight. But what's really interesting, we see other people that get way more hypermobile. So if you have a, a predisposition towards being, you know, hypermobile, you're, you're someone who just doesn't make or mature collagen as fast as your, your stiffer counterparts. So we see people that get looser when they throw baseball, and we see people that get tighter. So for us to say like, hey, the best way for you to bounce back after throwing is stretching, probably not the right case, you know? And mm-hmm. hey, if I do a bunch of manual therapy, I may make the loose guys even looser. Um, hey, if I do just stability exercise, it's probably going to help the, you know, the, the hypermobile individuals, but there are going to be guys, some, some guys who are losing range of motion quickly that are going to, you know, wind up in trouble. So you really can't one size fits all. And what happens in baseball is it just magnifies it to the max because the velocities are so high, the demands are so high. and you know, there was a study, you know, years ago that showed that 57% of pitchers have some form of shoulder injury every season. So more than half of them are going to have something. And that doesn't even take into account elbows, necks, obliques, you know, things like that. And, you know, those numbers are, you know, at a younger age, it's, you know, you, you take it up to the professional ranks where they're throwing harder than ever before. And you're, you realize you're always just kind of in this pseudo rehab state where you're just trying to keep them below that symptomatic threshold as best as you can.
1: Mm. And if you get somebody who's coming, who's not uh, not performing at that elite level, do you have any sort of advice on like a basic test retest that people can do when they come into the gym and go, right, where am I at today? Is it, is it sort of measuring external internal rotation against the wall? Are we looking at sort of a elevation test or anything where people can start to dial in and go, okay, well today I'm, I'm tight and I'm, I'm feeling a bit grotty. So yeah. my go-to is going to be X or is it an activation issue? And it's very difficult over podcast, but just yeah. your, your insight into That's that. Challenge.
2: I don't know that I necessarily have like one specific, um, like clearing tests like that you know it's not like hey if you come in and your vertical jump is down by 25 percent you shouldn't train today you know what, what i'll tell you is is pain is not normal you know if you if you walk in cold like you should be able to go into full shoulder flexion and feel fine doing it um and if that's limited you know like that's you know limited by pain obviously that's a concern it's one thing to have like a, a loss of range of motion or something like that and you know that's why your warm-ups come in handy and you know, use those as your corrective time periods before you actually get to your good training stuff. But, um, you know, pain is not normal. And, and, and what I love is there's a, there's a great Mike Boyle line where he says, does it hurt as a yes, no answer? Yeah. Yeah. Or doesn't hurt if I read, you know, red hot all over it and doesn't hurt. You know, as long as my arm's in this specific position and I don't move, like it hurts, you know, so just be honest with yourself because then it's going to allow you to, you know, kind of pull together an exercise program that's going to be more suited to your needs and get you closer to where you want to be
1: yeah uh, we get quite a lot of questions on instagram um and i know you've when i've seen your q a's before on instagram you, you um you often we often get people saying oh i've got this pain in my shoulder what do you think i should do and it's over instagram and it's a one-liner we're like yeah. just just because sometimes i don't think it, you know sometimes it just needs a different voice if someone's asking a question like that eric what is your what is your response if someone has got pain what should they do and we can just put this to bed <laughs> forever get <it>
2: checked out <laughs> Here, here's all we, yes. here's all we need to say is, <laughs> Just the, the statistical odds are if you're busy as a, whether you're a clinician or, you know, a personal trainer, strength coach, whatever it is specializing, you know, in, in musculoskeletal care, we'll call it. Over the course of your career, you will see one person who has pain because of cancer. It is what it is. Like, and, and we see uh, in baseball almost invariably every, every probably two years, we hear about an athlete who like fractures a humerus or, or has like a, you know, basically bone cancer. And that's the reason that the bone was at a weakness. Um, and it can be a, a terrifying diagnosis. And I've seen multiple guys who have had you know, that fracture when their arm was laid back. And the first thing they do is they, you know, they do a white blood cell count, they check to see if they actually have cancer. So and Charlie Weingroff has spoken about this. he's seen a couple of them. Like, um, I, I think back to early on in my career, we had an athlete in a weight room that, that I was kind of volunteering in. And I distinctly remember he was a guy that you know, everybody thought he was just soft. His conditioning wasn't good. Um, He had a massive tumor at the base of his spine. It was was kind of Mm. interfering with with blood flow back to his heart. So he wasn't, you know, basically getting good venous return. And he had a a tumor um, and, you know, had to go through, you know, chemotherapy and all that stuff. So you're going to miss one of those. So if, if something hurts, you know, chances are it's not that. But why wouldn't you get it checked out? Why would you go to Instagram for medical advice, right? Like you go to Instagram for yeah. recipes. Like not to not to repair your rotator cuff. So um, and actually probably go to Pinterest for recipes. I don't know, but um just gotta be cognizant about it. <laughs>
0: um so then one wanted to just as we go into like a little bit more detail, what uh, one of the, just leading on to then what do the what what if we've got a nice healthy shoulder or what are you looking for in a good, healthy shoulder that can, you know, that can come in and is going to be able to, whether it's with us, be able to go into and do a handstand or whether it's with you and they're going to be able to pitch a ball. Um, what are you, what are some of the key fundamental things that you're looking for somebody to be able to, to do well and, and how that shoulder should be functioning? And what are some of the common sort of issues that you'll yeah. see um, across the sort of various different populations? I would
2: say it's symmetrical, total motion, right and left. Um, assuming no surgical history, where, where something has effectively, you know, made their anatomy fundamentally unique, but that means that if I add internal and external rotation in the 90 degree position together, so maybe that's, you know, 70 degrees of internal rotation and 120 degrees of external rotation, you're at know, 190. Um, I should have 190 on the opposite side. That arc may be shifted. To be clear, if you're an overhead athlete, right? You still have some cricket players, I'm sure, that'll listen to this. They may have more external yeah. rotation. And, a, and less internal rotation on their throwing side. But if it adds up to the same bilaterally, that's a really good sign. You want symmetrical total motion, um, or at least very, very close to it. Um, second one is I, I, I personally prefer to see full shoulder flexion in the supine position. So if you're on your back, your knees are bent, your low back is flat, and you can take both of your arms all the way up overhead and they can come down flush to the table you're laying on, that's a good sign. Um, you know, and, and some people will be there because they're hypermobile, but other people will have – a lot of tissue extensibility to their lats or long head of their triceps, you know, to overcome. Maybe they, you know, they're really stuck in scapular anterior tilt, so they can't posterior tilt. Maybe they don't have enough thoracic extension to actually get to those positions. But you know, that that test is good because it's, you know, it's it's checking to see if you can get full shoulder flexion even with gravity helping you. Um, and if yeah. you if you can't that's that's a pretty good sign that you got some stuff you need to work on, and obviously we follow up we look at some of those te- uh, that test in particular in the standing position. How do you do when we actually have a little bit more stability meant we have to compete against gravity um, so I'll look at that um, you know cuff strength you know you don't want to be at a, a marked decrement in just terms of testing external rotation um, we see that you know you're usually in a situation where um, you know, if you don't have great external rotation strength, it's probably a pretty good measure of your inability to control the ball in the socket. Um, again, those are closed. Ch- yeah. That's an open chain test, so it doesn't carry over to everything. Um, that's a big one. And then just looking at, at um, scapular upward rotation. You know, if you look at the research mm. on it, you know they say like you want to be about fifty-five to sixty degrees of scapular upward rotation in a fully abducted position. Truth be told, most people don't get to that. Um, you know, I, I think I'm pretty happy if people are forty-five plus. Um, you know, particularly in the baseball population, you'll actually see worse upward rotation on the throwing side than the non-throwing side. So you're, you're always working to kind of improve that. But those are kind of my big ones. Um, you know, you can, you can certainly look at resting posture and it can, you know, maybe open up some, some windows into what may be going on even beyond that. Um, but, you know, I, I'm feeling pretty good if you're able to get to good positions and symmetrical total motion and, and at least near full shoulder motion in the flexion.
1: We'd like to interrupt this broadcast today to bring you a customer service announcement and we want to tell you how excited we are about the virtual classroom where our online community of amazing people are working together to redefine their impossible and achieve things in calisthenics that they never thought they would be able to, Jacko.
0: Yeah, if you've not thought about it yet, you should really consider uh, becoming a member of the virtual classroom. You become part of that supportive community and you then get access to absolutely every single training program we've got, every workout we do, every challenge, every webinar. and there is specific courses in there for everything from beginners to to handstands and human flags and everything in between you get access to all of it you get to learn at your own pace online with us within the supportive community of people encouraging each other to redefine their impossible guys it's
1: really something special we would love it if you come and check it out and until you do check it out and we see you in there let's get back to our regularly scheduled program
0: we had a couple of interesting conversations with um one but ian horsley is a uh some physio in um, in the EIS English Institute of Sport over here, and he's, he's sort of in charge of. If someone has a shoulder injury within uh, within the IS, they go and see him um, over here at the moment. And he was talking about that. Yeah, he, he mentioned that that sixty degrees as a as a as a marker to hit, yeah. and that so many people that he sees one of the big things that they've got when they're going, like particularly for this whole thing about going overhead, they're so, um, and people listening might be the same. They're so, uh, focused on keeping their shoulders sort of back and down as we, yeah. that they don't actually let them move. And so what I would, what I would be interested is of, um, when you see someone like that, what are some of the cues that you use to try and get them, like releasing that? Yeah. Um, in terms of or any so, particular you know yeah. movements that you like to take people yeah, through?
2: It's, it's multifactorial. Um, a lot of it's the exercise you use, right? So a um, a shoulder blade that's pinned together on a bench doing bench presses isn't going to rotate very well. But a shoulder blade that's you know doing a landmine press or a push-up variation or cable press, you know, assuming you cue it correctly, is going to move into into upward rotation. So you're going to get that good serratus anterior function and. Um, you know, I think that that's the first one. So it's not, you know, it's obviously the exercise you utilize. Um, but it's, you know, it's how you cue them as well. There are a lot of people that don't move their scaps at all when they do push-ups, which is a terrible idea. Um, Mm. you know, likewise, anything that drives a lot of lat dominance is probably going to be at odds with having good upward rotation. So lots of heavy, like farmer's walks, deadlifts, walking lunges, stuff that pulls you into a lot of scapular depression. Um, you know even like lat pulldowns things or even pull-ups you know those are things that drive lat dominance that can get some people into trouble um that's why you know we're probably always better equipped for like horizontal pulling we get better scapula thoracic motion in those doesn't require quite as much like shoulder range of motion for those who are in trouble so those are the ones that you know tend to do pretty well on the whole um you know with with i guess maybe like more one-size-fits-all programs as long as they're horizontal pulling they can get along with it Um, the the best cue I can ever tell you though, man, is as you go through a lot of those drills, put your hand on their shoulder blades and teach it where it's supposed to go. You know, scapulothoracic movement is a hard thing to appreciate. Um, it's not just like, Hey, go through elbow flexion and extension where you can see it and you can, you can visualize it. It's not like a, a, a movement where like, if you think about it this way, like I bend my elbow and I supinate, I can feel my biceps working. Serratus anterior is a scapular upward rotator it's an accessory respiratory muscle it has roles in terms of thoracic rotation um it you know is a protractor so like to really get it shortened like i've got to be up here i've got to be rotated <laughs> away and then i've got to <laughs> exhale and you know you're not going to feel like that sensation you would get as if you were doing a biceps pro and you're at the top of the moat and it's fully contracted so it's hard from just like a kinesthetic awareness uh, standpoint yep. to really feel so Grabbing those scaps and moving them to the positions you want, helping people around um, is really, really important. I do that. I do, like, I'll do i do some external focus cues where if we have someone who's like really pinned together like a military posture, I'll just put my fingers right between their shoulder blades, and I'll say, hey, don't crash together and hit me when you come back down. Stay away from my hand. So it's, that's the external focus cues for them. Um, I think that's a big one. Um, you, know, you look like prone trap raises, anything like that that's trying to teach people posterior tilt. That's a really hard one to um to improve a lot of times what i'll do is i'll I'll say hey pretend like you don't have an arm how are you going to find this motion and i'll just have the arm hang nice and loose and i'll guide the scap into posterior tilt so they feel it and i'll say hey when i let go i want you to hold this position be aware of where it is give me some isometric holds so we do a lot of iso holds with our you know kind of scapulothoracic uh, motion education work
1: I think it's one thing you did in the in the thirty shoulders, which I thought was great, and I actually quoted you in a in a, a presentation that we did at the UKCA. Was we've got a lot of complicated talk around the shoulder, and, and there's a lot of stuff to to think about and deal with, but you summed it up beautifully when you went keep the ball in the socket. That's and that's essentially what we're trying to do when we're talking about the, the scapular movement and we're talking about all these different joints that are at play. Mm-hmm. The job is, a, a healthy shoulder is one that stays in the socket and preferably in the middle of the socket, right? It's the, it's, that's the sort of the job of, if we boil it down to a to its basic level.
2: Absolutely. Well, yeah. Yeah, it's, yeah. the problem is just that you need to know why the socket is where it is. Where, are the, where yeah. are the relevant? And so we can simplify it to that term, but you know, you have to understand, well, if if you're really stiff through your lats, it's probably different than if you're really, really like aggressive as an upper trap compensator, right? And if you're really, really anteriorly tilted, that's gonna be markedly different than someone's really adducted. And there are gonna mm. be certain presentations that are really complex, right? So the guy who is elevated, adducted, and anteriorly tilted is the hardest fundamental presentation in, you know, in, in shoulder position. He, he has no idea where his serratus anterior is. <laughs> <laughs> got to work really really hard and he's and he's, he's effectively laid down uh you know tissue density in multiple areas right he's putting his rhombo yeah. he's putting his pec minor he's put it in his upper trap so you have a lot of tissue tone you've got to overpower to make that better
1: yeah that was one question i wanted to ask you actually we get a lot of people that come to us and they want to um they want to move into handstands so they, we're looking for that um, full shoulder flexion position and there's a lot of movements in calisthenics which require that that overhead range of motion and a lot of people struggle to get that and they get tight and they'll 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 get to a little bit of a point where they get a bit lost on what to do and they just it seems like it's taking a while and not getting improvements what what are your thoughts on improving range of motion and and the sort of steps that people can take to, to to make some realistic change
2: absolutely i i you know and you have to remember range can be limited for a lot of reasons right so range can be bony block which is going to be hard to fix without surgery range can be alignment driven right? You know, so you never want to like aggressively stretch somebody who's, who's out of alignment. It's like, you don't want to drive a car too fast if it's out of alignment because you're going to create instability. Um, that's where some of like the posture restoration stuff has been really, really powerful. Um, you know, you have people who are, you know, they, they have protective tension that may limit range of motion. So I caught, I saw a, Crazy hypermobile woman um, a couple of weeks ago with really kind of chronic back pain. Um, she had brutal shoulder flexion, but she could hyper extend her elbows. She could, like, you know, take her thumb down to her form. She was really, really hypermobile. So she's had a lot of accessory tone um, through her lats. And that's why she probably was powering into so much extension based back pain. Um, so, you know, you can have issues like that for a lot of reasons. Capsular changes in, in older individuals are certainly profound. Um, you know, people who have been in a sling after a surgery may have actually, like, lost sarcomeres. So you have to separate out whether you're dealing with shortness, whether you're dealing with stiffness, whether you're dealing with alignment, whether you're dealing with a bony block. And, and that's where, you know, this is more of an art than it is a science sometimes. You test, you got to retest. I've seen scenarios where, where guys gained 60 degrees of shoulder flexion with some positional breathing. I've seen other scenarios where that same guy with brutally short lats like needed a lot of manual therapy, longer duration, you know, static stretching holds. And, and we kind of recognize also like this, maybe a guy who doesn't get full shoulder flexion back because we have so much work we need to ever uncover. And Hey, he's a guy who throws a baseball for a living. So, you know, nine months out of the year, he's going to be making our job way harder by throwing hundred miles an hour. So you have to figure out what it is. What I, what I do really like though, um, is Charlie Weingroff. I mentioned him before, but he had a great line is "Get long, get strong, train hard right so get long there there are a million different ways where we can transiently change range of motion, whether that 's positional breathing, yoga, manual therapy you know dry needling grass and you know all those um maybe it's just actual static stretching you know there's there's lots of different ways and that's the stuff we fight about everybody disagrees on how you do that right um you know hey i, I don't believe in uh, cupping whatever it is you know and i mm-hmm. i personally do great with cupping i actually feel remarkable when i do it i don't really respond that well to dry needling so i think there's there's an individual mm-hmm. variability to that but um what we all agree on though is what looks good right from a stability standpoint when he when he says get long we fight about it but when he say get strong you and i you know we all go out and coach a lunge we can kind of generally agree what a lunge should look like right it shouldn't be valgus you know there should be a you know a relatively vertical shin you know maybe there's a little bit of forward trunk lean to get a little more glute max involvement but you know you shouldn't be folding up like a tin can uh, or sorry like a lawn chair so uh, i think those are the things that we can agree on and then what you do is once you've gotten long you, you know you've gotten strong you've created some stability in that range of motion to make it stick the next step is is train a lot you know train hard get some volume in so that those patterns are re-ingrained and that the individual is accepting them as normal and when you do that with a little bit of load they tend to stick a little bit faster so weight training can be the most you know like when done correctly there there isn't a better range of motion improver than than just quality resistance training through a full range of motion the problem is you can't just guess that's what it's going to be you can't just go and try to squat deep if you got a big old bony block on your hip
0: yeah (laughs) yeah it's a good but it's a good point in that one of the questions i was going to ask was around if someone's when we've got some of those uh, some of those restrictions and if it is something that we can make some change with because it's tissue Mm -hmm. um how uh, almost like when someone's been potentially in some poor positions posturally and poor movement patterns for Years or maybe even tens of years. Like we had one guy who was like sixty-nine years old when he came to one of his first classes, and he'd been a, a truck driver, and he couldn't lift his arm above about, yeah. you know, he couldn't, he could barely lift his, he get his arms nowhere near above his head. Um, and um how, yeah, how much of that re, like retraining of move movement sort of pattern to be able to get yourself moving. Better, uh, do you sort of emphasis do you put on that, and then just wanted to pick up on that, highlighting that point is something that Tim said a number of times of if we are training into if we 're trying to create some new ranges, so someone 's trying to improve their their internal rotation because of their, their, their transition in a muscle up or their, their full shoulder flexion and we 're trying to do something to that as long as we're starting to then train in those ranges, like you just describing, whether that is with resistance training whether we 're using our body weight for it. We're going to then start to, you know, teach ourselves to be strong in those positions rather than just stretching for the sake of stretching yeah. and then not actually then going and using that range of motion.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, our, the, the answer I would just say is it depends. Right. So bad movement ultimately yeah. does become cemented joints. Right. So if you have, yeah. you know, faulty movement where you're out of alignment, there, there are a couple of things that can happen. Right. You can you can blow out ligamentous structures that, you know, restrict you in one way or another. So you see that you know baseball players whose anterior capsules get too loose or you know individuals who have you know transient injuries with in the acl tear or something like that but um, so those are certainly considerations um but we also have scenarios where you know people will develop bony changes right so if you if you lack good stability um or you're, you're artificially kind of creating range in the wrong places especially arthrokinematically so the rolling the rock and the gliding in the joint yeah you'll lay down some bones first maybe you develop an arthritic shoulder Um, you, you know, you develop a a knee with some degenerative changes, you get a hip that just doesn't go the way that used to. And and obviously there's, there's genetic predispositions too. We we know Eastern European hips tend to be, you know, really shallow and allow for a lot of hip flexion. They don't have really like thick femoral necks. Whereas, you you know, I'm Irish and English, um, in my heritage. So I've got, you know, hips like a crowbar by nature and I have to work at it. So my, my uh, acetabulum is very deep, My, my femoral necks are thicker, presumably, um, so that's just the way that, you know, you know, Scottish hips are wired. So you, you work with it, yeah. but, um, I think the place that you start is you obviously screen for, you know, bony blocks, significant changes, particularly those that are accompanied by discomfort, you know? So if you have pain and deflection and internal rotation, in your hip, that's not a good sign. Um, you know, so you look for, you know, is there a test retest where they get better when you give some posterior tilt or some abdominal bracing, or even some manual therapy, and if those things don't change, then you know you're probably dealing with a joint thing. Um, and, then, and the next place you go is you look at alignment, um, and that's where you know some of the posture restoration stuff is is so outstanding. And um, you know, just getting people into a neutral alignment, having them do some positional breathing, and, and owning that pattern, you'll often see some transient changes. Um, usually, from there, I look to manual therapy stuff. Um, you know, particularly if we're looking at a shoulder, it's, you know, it's usually look at thoracic mobility as well as manual therapy. So it kind of follows this proximal to distal approach of Hey, if uh, let's say you've got limited right shoulder internal rotation, you know, first off, I'm, I'm, I'm checking you out to see if you feel like a shoulder that is just nasty and degenerative and arthritic, right? It just doesn't look the way that it should. And that's someone, hey, I'm referring you out. I want to, I want to get a feel for what's going on structurally. If it feels limited, but it's got kind of a good end feel, I'm usually going to like some, some PRI uh, positional breathing drills um, where I'm actually appreciating, hey, this is someone that's probably just got a you know, a low right shoulder, they got an adducted right hip, abducted left hip, they are stuck in left thoracic rotation. You know, this is something that I think we can clean up with good positional breathing. Maybe we get a little bit better there. And then, you know, from there, I'm saying, hey, let's, let's try some thoracic mobility stuff. So I'll, I'll look at, you know, a lumbar locked rotation test and say, hey, you know what, they're, they're really good uh, passively, but they're terrible actively. So this is a is a motor control issue or maybe it's a passive issue and I, I need to actually create some, some length changes, um, you know, whether it's, you know, actual joint stuff or LAD or QL or PEC. So you kind of work backwards from this and, you know, you throw some manual therapy at it and, uh, maybe you work on a subclavius or a PEC minor scaling, something like that. And all of a sudden what you're realizing is, is you're working further and further downstream. That internal rotation is, is, in the shoulder is improving and you haven't actually touched the shoulder. And this is the one that, that like, you know, I've, I've kind of like, poo-pooed on the sleeper stretch i'm not a fan of it and people go crazy on instagram and i, I literally have to answer the question like 500 times every time there's a QA because invariably there's someone that's been taught it and you know so by the time you get to the shoulder there's research that actually shows the sleeper stretch isn't even the most efficient path to improving internal rotation a sideline cross body stretch is actually better if you look at the research and it's actually way less likely to impinge you way less likely to tear your posterior calf Even if they shoulder issue and not something further up the chain, a sleeper stretch is still a bad idea. Um, so I don't have any problem with you training in general rotation, but aggressively stretching in the internal rotation is not a good idea. Um, it generally just people impinge, they do it incorrectly. Um, so you, you need to you know kind of be cognizant about how you approach it. Um, and usually the people yeah. that, are, that are talking about that too don't really <clears throat> fundamentally even know what like the posterior capsule is or what it does. It's it's, a, it's you know Mike Reynolds has, has you know published some good stuff on this. Is that the posterior capsules is thin as like a piece of tissue paper. Like you can shine a flashlight through it. Like it's not going to be a massive limiter to, to shoulder internal rotation. Yes. It's a little bit thickened in overhead athletes, but those individuals can still be posteriorly translated. So we know that that stiffness is not coming from the capsule. So if you stretch something that's not stiff and is very flimsy in nature, you're probably going to tear it up. Eventually we've actually seen before and after MRIs on athletes that were managed that way where they have, where the rehab process actually made them worse. So, the shoulder is a delicate joint. You don't need to aggressively stretch it unless you're absolutely sure why you're doing it. Um, and it's one thing to stretch into shoulder flexion. You can, you can bang your head against the wall with that one all day and it's probably not gonna cause problems. Doing a lot of stretching into IR and ER in some cases can, can really flare people up.
0: Yeah I think when you mentioned when you went we go right back to the start when you, you said about the shoulder and you went well actually it's a series of lots of these different joints actually working together as one and it's not just about that that glenohumeral joint and that the everything you described about them, if you could almost feel that like delicateness in your voice, as you were, were saying it yeah. and it's not, it's completely different kettle of fish to how we can approach the hip. Where yeah. You can
2: crack on it. So hip.
0: much more. Yeah. Exactly. But <laughs> if someone is used to training in the, you know, someone might be listening, that's used to training in the gym and they, they, they might do some stretching or some mobility work on the hip and take the same approach and philosophy into their, their shoulder. And it's just, a, it's, a, it's good to hear that, that from yourself. And I think one one of the things I wanted to just, just sort of touch on before we move on was that, that other than, other than like, yeah, pay, if someone's got pain, they need to go, like we said, they need to go and see someone and get that checked out. Mm -hmm. But the other thing being like, that there's we're often looking for like what's the perfect like either posture or perfect position for me to to be in and, and, and losing a little bit of that um, variability to describe it between yeah. different individuals. And you talked about your your heritage and you know, we've worked with a number of Paralympic athletes where, you know, they, they might be missing like both of their knees and the rest of their legs and we're going to train the hip um, because they're still a sprinter. Much different to and and how it's able to. It's amazing to see what how it can adapt, yeah. and how it can do the job. Like, we've literally, I'm thinking of one guy that's doing he, he's, he's in a phase of moment, he's actually doing like a single leg depth jump box to box, but he's only got the hip mm-hmm. to provide what would normally the rest of us would have that triple extension, yeah. and, and the majority of it coming from his ankle. And actually, like he's getting pretty, like he's pretty good. And it's like, I just can't even imagine like, but it's been something that's been progressive for him, but there's over a number of years. And it's just, for me, it like highlights the fact that things don't necessarily like take pain out of it, but things don't have to be perfect for us to be able to perform certain movements and skills as best as our bodies can and almost embrace what we've been given rather than constantly trying to make sure that I've got the perfect you know shoulder flexion or internal yeah. rotation or you know bearing it like within yeah. the confines of I sh- it should be easy and it shouldn't be painful yeah
2: i mean our, our bodies are definitely programmed we're we're very adaptable creatures that can. and handle- everyone's different yeah. right we can handle a lot of variability and you know, that's that's evolutionary why why we are, we are, right? We can we can adapt to altitude, right? We can change how well we, we effectively make use of oxygen um, when it's when it's limited. So, you know, these are all things that we're we're programmed to handle and, and movement variability is no different, right? Tissue extensibility can change, we can acquire new motor control, um, you know, in range of motions that may be unfamiliar to us. You know, where we tend to get into trouble when we try new stuff is you try it in with fatigue. Um, you know, we try it with extreme velocities, right? So that's why yeah. the unfit guy who goes out and plays beer league softball and tries to run the bases at a hundred percent usually, you know, pulls a hamstrings. Whereas like most people can go out and do it if they just don't run the bases hard. You know, it's not that mm-hmm. bad. So understanding that dynamic i think is really, really important and, and certainly there's there's age appropriate stuff right our tissues get way more degenerative as we as we get older you know we, we have more like beef jerky instead of filet mignon um so I'm, I'm 37 years old so i'm starting to appreciate like the transition from you know i hey i could i can still do all the dumb stuff i did in my 20s i just can't bounce back from it as much and i you know my likelihood of screwing something up is, is higher so um you know that's that's something we learn as we go but um I, I always come back to the best posture is the one that's constantly changing. You know, expose yourself to different ranges of motion and find some find some variability in your daily life, and, and add amplitude to your movements wherever it's appropriate. And you're usually going to live a longer and pain free existence. Yeah.
1: Uh, last question, Eric, and then we'll wrap it up. Is um, again, just looking at some of the exercise protocols that you use and some of the different movements. There's a big place in your in your shoulder of. Uh, uh, let's trace a training philosophy for closed kinetic chain mm-hmm. positions, and um, obviously, calisthenics takes that to a fairly sort of extreme level at times, where we are moving from, um, let's say, push-up positions, and, and you've you obviously worked, you're in some like a pike positions, and, and you've talked about serratus activation of getting hands overhead for that sort of scapular mobility or um, <laughs> activation. Um, we obviously think about taking it into things like planchers and, and, um, and levers on the rings and handstands. How do you see sort of kinetic chain or closed kinetic chain? movements being a having a role for shoulder health and performance and do you do you use any sort of calisthenics and progressive positions where you're loading into sort of quite high forces in those kind of
2: positions yeah absolutely so first off i'd say there's always a place for closed chain everything right because hey, you know, in the lower extremity, we live our body in closed chain life. Upper extremity is obviously a little bit different because we have a a mixture of open and closed chain exercises that we encounter both in life and in sporting tasks. Um, What I would tell you is the nice thing about closed chain stuff is you can draw a lot of stability from the floor. Um, So, you know, to be honest, a a handstand is probably more fundamentally shoulder healthy um, than an overhead press in someone who has an appreciable level of strength, right? You're the problem is the load is dictated by your body weight, right? So I can, yeah. I can do a push press with 45 pounds, you know, and if I go and I do a handstand, inherently, I'm going to have to support, you know, 185 to 190 pounds. So it's just not easily scalable until you have an, an appreciable level of strength. But if we actually look at what you know stress is thrown on the shoulder joint pound for pound, it's actually probably substantially healthier for you to go to the handstand position. Where do, where does the handstand get vilified? Well, it gets vilified if you give it to an untrained 47 year old woman who's, who's basically exercising for the first time in her life. A, it's embarrassing for her cause she can't do it. B it, it's, the force is simply too high. So it kind of speaks to that last point is, you know, nothing's bad as long as it's not progressed too quickly and in the wrong people. Um, so I, I see no reason why we, we can't utilize that. And we, we do have a lot of stuff. I mean, everything from bear quarrels and inchworms and things like that to obviously, you know, you're, you're progressing to you know more advanced things on rings and, you know, supportive stuff where, you know, you're in the bot, like the handstand position and stuff like that. There's, there's absolutely a place for it. You know, for me, um, there's also the, the question that we deal with if we're talking about our higher level baseball players is there's not a, a ton of value in me really going to great lengths from a teaching standpoint with them. Right. I, you know, I have a limited window to work with. So, you know, some of the same arguments against Olympic lifts in some athletes is, you know, hey, if the mm. risk injury of risk is a little bit higher, if I can't do them perfectly, is it worth me teaching them uh, mm. if I can get some of those same benefits? So I know our baseball players, they make their money in open chain, right? That's the nature of it. And, you know, if if I'm going to spend an extra hour a week with them on gymnastics movements, and teaching them how to use the rings and things like that, then that's an hour that they're not working on pitching mechanics. It's an hour that they're not working on Landmine presses, med ball throws, horizontal pulling, rotational patterns, bear crawling, sprint work, all these other competing demands. So I think what you have to come back to is, you know, the the person who's in the general fitness world has has far fewer competing demands, right? So once you've yeah. retired from competitive athletics, you know, your goal is, you know, let's, let's not be fat, <laughs> you know, let's not be fat and let's not hurt. Like, let's, let's be honest. Those are kind of two of the big ones. So you have more wiggling with those people because they're not worried about a 95 mile an hour fastball or a you know, a, a 11 foot broad jump or, or some other very like quantifiable improvement that's making them good in their sport, even like power lifters, right there. Um, you know, their are their demands are even smaller than what we would deal with with our baseball players. So you, you have more variability with your, your general pop folks that are just trying to have fun with training. It comes back to the start of the discussion is if they enjoy it yeah. and you can progress them well with it and it fits with their structural limitations and their movement proficiencies, go with it. If they, if they enjoy it, do it
0: yeah yeah no but that's something that we've like that we've literally found we've you know from our own training we didn't we used to play rugby we had no experience of any gymnastics or anything before and we've had to um break things down and regress things to the level that we yeah. could do them at the start which was we were rubbish and so um, we have a, a, a series of like progressions and regressions to take things so that someone isn't having, you know, Sally who's 47 coming straight in the gym doesn't have to go straight into a full handstand to be able to get into a position that's a little bit more rather than just going from a, a push-up position we can play around with some of moving some of the uh, or changing the training environment for it, to just gradually sort of load up those positions as an example and um, it does like you say bring back to uh, what we talked about at the beginning that it can that for general pop can be a fun and enjoyable way Mm -hmm. um, to train with some of the professional athletes we've worked with we've used it as little bits of um parts of a warm-up just to this it's bringing play into a warm-up it might only last five minutes but it's a little bit of play in the session it's good for um you know for getting things fired up and activated and getting a little bit of tissue temperature in there because you do a few of the like wall walks or you do a couple of frog stands and you you can start to get (laughs) as well quite quickly and um it's a way that we sort of like weave things in when appropriate but you know like you say if somebody wants to get very good at something quite Like a fine and and, and small as a thing, like pitching, then they need to do a lot of that. They need need to be wasting time on other learning other skills and elements. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's definitely, um, we feel got roles, but to varying degrees across. A different populations and and B different sports. You
2: can't use your warm up for whatever you want it for, right? We have a basketball hoop at our outside our facility. Like we we have days where like we'll take our fourteen year old athletes, like we'll go out and play knockout at the end of a warm up, right? You know, they can go do that. Like you know, you obviously have like scenarios. Like one of the things that we'll do with our our adult strength campers is we may use the five minutes at the end of the warm up as like a technique day. Like hey, we have some people that need to learn how to Turkish get up. We're gonna do a Turkish get up clean up here. Hey, we're all warmed up. Your, you get your aerobic system primed for some good cognition like let's go ahead and use that as a as a time to learn and ingrain some of these patterns then we'll get to our workout so you, i mean that's the nice thing you can you can make what you're training whatever you want it to be yeah yeah love it
0: so Mate. Eric just uh, to, to sort of wrap things up um, one thing you said was about um, exploring sort of using your body to, to, to move through different ranges of motion and do things that are a little bit different is there for sort of uh, someone that's listening that isn't a professional baseball thrower yeah. f- potentially that's just like general pop is sat there listening they've enjoyed it is there any have you got any other is there like if you had one take home message with someone that was like they're not in pain they're moving reasonably well but they want to um, you know make their shoulders as, as best as they can it was just like one final piece of advice before we sign off?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I would say is maybe not, maybe not one, but I would say do the things that you're not typically doing. Right. And you guys obviously do that in the context of bodyweight exercises and calisthenics and all that stuff. But, you know, we see a lot of people that do a lot of like bench pressing, but not a lot of pushups, right. They don't do a lot of what we would call free scapula pressing. So they miss out on that stuff. You know, they, they don't do a lot of, like, rotator cuff direct exercise. We know most people over the age of 60 have torn rotator cuffs. So, you know, if you can put some of that legwork in at age 30, you're probably going to help yourself down the road. Um, you know, we, just, we see a lot of just, you know, situations where, like, people go to the bike, and they go to the gym and they sit on a bike for a long time, right? So there's not a whole lot of variability in riding a bike, particularly if you spent <laughs> the entire day working at a computer. So, you know, find yeah. variability in your daily life. Try the things that you haven't done before, but obviously integrate them at a gradual pace and, and don't get over your skis too aggressively.
0: Um, so thank you for coming on to the podcast. Now, if you're listening, Eric would love it if you'd give us a positive review on iTunes <laughs> um, for the podcast and, and, help. And, if, and if there is anyone that you, you can think of that share it with them that you think would be good. And also let us know what you thought. You know, I'm sure Eric um, would love to hear from you. on, uh, on Just give us your, if people find you, uh, Twitter, Instagram.
2: Websites, ericcressy.com, E-R-I-C-C-R-E-S-S-E-Y. And Eric Cressy is both Twitter and Instagram, so you can find me there.
0: Yeah, and we'll put the links in the show notes so that you can uh, you could they can be able to click straight through and find you. So yeah, let us let us and let Eric know what you thought of of the podcast. If you've got any questions, we're more than happy to answer them as always. Yeah, I can definitely test the the quality of the, the
1: content that Eric puts out. And if you want, this, we've talked a lot of, of complex stuff. For some people, it might be a little bit sort of high level. But if you go onto Eric's social media, there's a ton of stuff that you can go and see exercises which you can actually start playing around with and see what works and take take his advice and sort of test, retest, do something, see if it makes it better if it does do more of it if it doesn't think about maybe trying something else so it's uh, there's loads of tons of ideas go and they can kind of have a go with so that means there's nothing else for us to say but thank you eric for your time today until next week
2: class dismissed